Welcome, everyone. You're listening to Structure Talk, a Structure Tech presentation. My name is Bill Ulrich, alongside Tessa Murray and Ruben Saltzman. As always, your three-legged stool coming to you from the Northland, talking all things houses, home inspections, and anything else that's rattling around in our brain. Well, on today's episode, we're one leg. Tessa and Ruben are both out uh, of the office this week, and I'm filling in all by myself. But I'm really excited to be having a conversation with Rob Thomas from Sussel Garages. And I am noticing new garages popping up all over in my neighborhood. I'm in St. Paul, kind of in the southwest corner of St. Paul. And every time I go out for a walk with my dogs, it seems like I find three new lots that have had their garages demolished and a Sussel garage sign sitting next to the what used to be garage. So I reached out to Rob at Sussel and I asked him to come on and just talk a little bit about what's fueling this craze behind new garages. So Rob, thank you very much for giving us some time. We appreciate it. Why don't you introduce yourself to the audience and kind of give some of the contact info in case anybody's looking to upgrade their garage. My contact info is 651-587-4078. That's my cell phone. You can call at any time or you can reach me at rthomas. That's R-T-H-O-M-A-S at builders.com. And then, you know, we've been a well-established company for over 100 years. This is our niche in the market. This is what we like to do every day. You know, I've been selling personally in St. Paul for the last four years. I was out in the donut for quite a long time there. And they call it the donut, which is out to the 494 area, you know, outside the loop. But Dennis was our St. Paul sales rep for like the last 42 years. But kind of talked about the longevity of how many years a lot of the employees have been with the company. Even our owners now, Pat and Mike Russell, they bought the company from their dad. And so they're about the same age as me in their 50s. And it just obviously not is best. You never know everything, but the more you have, obviously, the better we are as a team in the office trying to make sure we can supply you with enough information and, and product knowledge and stuff like that. So, Where does Sussel come from if the Russell <laughs> brothers own so it? Sussel is a family-owned company up until like the 60s, and they sold their rights off to individual family, and they ended up merging with Lambert's Lumber. So they were, they were kind of merged there for like for a while, and then long story short, the hard times back in the early 80s that they decided to uh, close the doors. We had our own lumber yard and everything. It's just costs were so high for construction and interest rates were 18%. So they decided to retool the company. The employees actually bought the company out and spun it away from Lampert's and that's who we are today. So basically Art Russell and Elfwick and there was another owner in there and kind of slimmed up the structure and made it efficient. And then that was kind of more recession-proof than ever. And that's the biggest that challenge of any company. You get too much overhead to just having that lumber yard and having a lot of overhead that just it wasn't working out back in the days. So, Well, Lampert's yeah. still doing business. There's plenty of shops out there. So, you know, if you get on our website, it, it kind of explains the whole, whole history of us and kind of where we're at today. It's glad to be part of the team. Awesome. From what I can gather... You guys are one-stop shop, and does that include, you know, tearing down the old unit and then coming in, doing the foundation, building wall, siding, everything, or are you guys only responsible for a part of um, that We like to do all of it if we could. I know there's some homeowners that would like to do parts of the project themselves, which which is fine with us, as long as we're comfortable with, you know, what they're doing, whether it's electrical or they have some friend in the family that can do a roofing or siding or something like that, then we're comfortable letting them do parts of the project. Otherwise, we do like to control most of the work to sell the project try to get done in a timely manner. You know, 
it's up to the homeowners uh, trusting us to making sure that we get the job done right. It's a relationship because it goes both ways. Sure. And when you say timely, it seems like, is this a week-long project, uh, two weeks? Yeah, the best way to kind of describe it is in stages. Removal crews will give them a block of time to get there, you know, because they're going from job to job to job. And we'll, like, say, Rich Stevens is a good example. He does a lot of our St. Paul demolitions jobs, and we'll give him, like, a three- or four-day window to get there. And and then he'll get his job done. And a couple days later, we try to schedule the concrete crew out. and We give them a week block to get their stuff done. And then once the concrete gets poured, it sits there for a little bit because it's curing. Kind of the slowest stage, you know. So really within week, three weeks you're only at your foundation stage. But once once that happens, you're at your framing stage, you know, the lumber shows up, the carpentry can happen in a day or two. And then, then after we get our inspections, there's always inspections in there. So realistically, can we build a garage in six weeks? It's realistic, but just expect eight with weather delays and stuff like that. And because of COVID supply chains, I always try to tell customers, you know, up to 12 weeks, just because you just don't know the unforeseen. It depends what you describe as fully completed versus, uh, you know, usable. I mean, obviously you can use your garage once the framing and roofing's up and stuff like that. It's just whether we're 100% done or not. Okay. So you were outside the donut, as you called it. And was that just brand new, never been there before garage where you were you were selling these types of things? There was a, a good mixture. A lot of them were attached garages. I would say a good, I would say a good six, yeah, 30% of bids I did out in the donuts were attached garages, like two car garages. I want a third stall. You know, we're competing against like pole builders back out there, but there's certain cities that don't allow pole buildings. So, you know, they want these big, massive garages. I mean, I built a garage that actually was in Minnetonka for a couple that was two horse stables in it. So (laughs) that's pretty cool garage and had a deck and an office and it was a pretty cool project. And there was one I did, it was a golf simulator involved. There's uh, kind of all different, you know, scenarios what people would want, you know, man caves, you can call them or, or shops or, you know, whatever you end up using it for. But St. Paul's a little different niche. You got a garage that's not functional. Obviously, you're forced to do something sooner or later. Some people wait till the dire end. Drive-by garages I bid, you know, four years ago, and I they're still there. I mean, nobody's done with them, anything with them because they're they're leaning one side or the other. But I get it. There's everyone's got a budget and what people can afford. So so people save for it and then call me three four years later and said we're ready to go. Or sometimes uh, they know what they want and then you know they're probably signing a contract a week later. So they all vary. Sure. Okay. In the city. You know, we we see a lot of accessory dwelling units going up. This is kind of a buzzword, I think, around the real estate community. Are you guys adding a lot of these sorts of units on top of a garage, or is that not really? Uh, We do a lot of room and attic trust garages, which people could use them as a rec room, an office, stuff like that. I mean, you know, you're not supposed to be sleeping up there, obviously, but people can use them for that reason. They finish them off as a however you want to use it, but. The ADUs, the accessory dwelling units, I actually met a gentleman to this morning. We talked about he wants one bit out. You know, it, it's a totally different market. It's a totally different building codes, different criteria. So it really isn't a garage. It's, it's you're building a small house. Once I start talking to them about the $200,000 and $250,000 price ranges, a lot of people shy away from it. Or some people like, this is what I want. This is what I'm going to get. So we have never built one. I priced one out because I want to know what they cost with our resources. And that's kind of the price tag I came up with because you have to have a controlled furnace air conditioning unit upstairs to circulate the air upstairs. That cannot be mixed with the dirty air downstairs in the garage. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to heat and cool, obviously, those units. But in the square footage, you know, what you're limited in, in, in not just limited to, but we need to have livable space up there. It's It has to be a totally different trust system. So we're too busy doing what we do now. And for us to take a coordinator and just have them run one of those jobs, it's just, it's not something we're willing to do right now. You know, we talk about it all the time. Maybe we should get into it more because it seems like more people ask about it. But at this time, we're probably not in that market. I was just thinking of my lot. 
And if I was to look at doing something like that, and you know, when you think of a accessory dwelling unit, obviously plumbing's mm-hmm. a big part of it. I have no idea how you'd connect, you know, plumbing to the main at my house without it be incredibly invasive to to try to. They want you to the street, so we'd have to you'd have to trench a new sewer line through the yard to the street. Ballpark thirty thousand. Just figure something like that's going to cost you. I mean, they can they can auger it, they can bore it to the street so they don't have to do a massive trench we've done water lines to garages and that's not a challenge but it just it's a price tag it's what somebody wants to spend it's like six thousand dollars usually or seven thousand to run a water line which is crazy but they got a trench at six feet down so it's gonna be frost protected and it's always a challenge of getting back there but uh it's pretty rare we do over water line it's once once well, i did one this year but it's every once in a while gotcha are more people looking to replace and rebuild simply because they need more tech or they want more tech? Or is it just the fact that that one car garage that was built for the very small vehicle that they maybe had in the 50s or something just isn't usable? It's not functional anymore. It's been crazy market. So every different scenario is different. We tore down a perfectly functional Sussel garage last year. That was two cars and they wanted a three car. So we tore down a garage that was nothing wrong, but they wanted a three car with a room above. That's what they wanted. They wanted that room, an office or whatever they want to use it for. And they looked at selling. They couldn't find anything they wanted. So obviously they were content where they're at. They liked their neighborhood. So it made sense in them for investing another $80,000 and getting what they want, a three car garage with a room above. And then there's people that are just content, just have an extra space to put storage in or a shop or something like that. I would say half the time it's because a need, not a want, but the other half is a want, not a need. You know, so I want this versus I need this kind of thing. And you know, it's just it, some get damaged by fire, some get damaged by uh, arson, you know, or stuff like that. Will come come in for you know they weren't they didn't need a garage or want a garage, but it just kind of happened. Sure. If you're ballparking a square foot a footprint for a three car garage, what does that look like? to get three full vehicles in is that 32 by 36 it, or what typically i always stress to go a 22 foot depth just because if you put a car in there it's 17 feet long on the, you know like a large suv a mid-size suv is like 16 to 17 feet long so if you have a 20 foot depth garage it'll fit but it's kind of tight so 22 depth is nice to have uh 20 will work but then and if you think about it each stall can house a car that's 10 feet wide so like a 20 foot wide two-car garage works it's tight but even like a 30 foot wide garage for a three stall, it works, but it's tight. I always stress to do like a 32 or even a 34 because most of your lots in St. Paul are 40. So you can go up to a 34 and fit it comfortably. I stress once you figure your pricing in garages, the larger the footprint, the less per square foot it costs because you have fixed costs in there, permitting, surveys, I don't know, I guess whatever the job is, it just, you have set fees. And then as this garage get larger, you just look at it, you're just paying a little more for building materials, labor and such not. And and the price actually happens to go down slightly every time you add two feet. So that's always stress. You just make sure you build it what you need and want, or don't second gear yourself and wish you had built a little bigger. So yeah, that makes total sense. Okay. On a, let's say a 32 foot wide garage. I'm, I'm just trying to think of this 40 foot lot you describe in the city. Which way are you putting your trusses? Are they draining? Would the eaves be on the 22 foot depth, excuse me, or would you put it on the, on the, yeah, the I longer one? Yeah, I garage. I flipped the trusses. I gave the customer an option. We're doing one long truss, 30 feet wide. Or we could flip it around and have the truss reverse truss it so it's going the other way. And it really comes down to, I mean, cost is one thing. It does cost a little different 
If you do the reverse truss, you just have to add a gutter. So because you get to have some water runoff, you get to deal with. But you're paying for less for siding, shingles, and stuff like that, and the truss itself. So it does cost a little less to reverse it, but you should put a gutter on there for drainage reasons. But some people want that bigger footprint, maybe for solar or something like that. So, But it's it's comparable in cost. And then and also the roof pitch, too. That's a big variable as well. I mean, the, the steeper the roof, you know, once again, you're paying more for shingles and siding and then obviously the truss. Okay. Are most people opting to put some sort of attic truss into these buildings because you can't get this space at a second time around? Yeah, we built more room in attic trusses in the past couple of years since the pandemic started just because it costs less to do a room in a garage versus adding a room to a house if you look at that cost. and. You know, if you're not worried about a bathroom, you know, you can deal without a bathroom, then it works for most people. So, yeah, I mean, just you're adding more square footage, your rec room, kids' playroom, man cave, however you want to call it. Whether somebody wants to spend it, seventy to $80,000 price tag, you know, it's or they just want a simple garage where it's in the 40s. So, I'll bury Okay. Okay. Well, that that's a good ballpark then, because that was one of my questions is what are, what should somebody expect? So on the low end, 40, and that feels like a very small garage to something with a few more features pushing into the 80, 90,000. Yeah. And range. everything matters as far as, you know, what you're putting into the garage. Let's say you go vinyl siding, no windows or use, you know, less expensive windows I like to use a term for because the windows we use are you know, they're not the uh, box door brand type, but they're more of a, a mid-grade vinyl window. Uh, or okay. garage doors, all that stuff. We we don't like to skimp on product, so we'll spend a little more money on product, and then product lasts longer. But when it comes to designing a garage, you know, let's say somebody wants hardy siding or LP versus vinyl, you're going to bring the price tag up a few thousand bucks here and there just for the materials being used. Or if you just try to keep the price as cheap as possible, like people want to use the word cheap. I don't like to use it as cheap, but less expensive I like to use. But uh, you bring it bring it down to a low 40s, you know, maybe on a, a decent two-car garage with a small apron or something like that with electrical. But there are so many moving parts as far as these garage pricings, you know, as far as like, like, like a room and attic truss. First thing I identify is if you're going to heat and cool it, let's use better windows. Let's use better garage doors or higher higher instability garage doors and stuff like that. When it comes to heating, are you seeing that people put heat in most of their garages now? Because that feels like a significant upgrade in yeah, price. Yeah, there's a lot of different ways to heat and cool the garage. You know, mini splits are getting more and more popular because they're becoming more and more efficient. Gas heaters was probably something we pushed a lot more back in the day, but the mini split has come a long ways. The mini split can heat and cool and control the moisture in the garage as well. And cost-wise, they're pretty comparable to putting a gas heat in with a gas line. And then the thing is, like I like about the mini split, you look at what it costs to run all the time versus running a gas out there all the time. It's more efficient. And I don't I've been putting more mini splits in garages than ever. Gas lines and gas heaters. If you just want to go in there, flip the switch, it heats up really fast. But if you can run it all the time, it's going to consume your energy bill quite a bit more. So if it's 10 below out, they tend not to keep it at room temperature. What happens, they don't quit running, but they actually start heating themselves. Once the unit gets heated itself, then it'll start heating the actual garage. And then you'll see a lot of mini splits installed in St. Paul, Minneapolis, the older houses. They don't own ductwork, and people love them. Everyone I talk to that's installed them in their houses, they love them. They said their energy bills have gone down, so it kind of speaks for itself. So it's I would not have thought mini split in garage. It just it didn't make sense to me, but you know, that's why we have these conversations because it, it's a good yeah. education. Okay. Solar. Everybody seems to be putting solar panels on top of their house or on top of their garage. Is this mostly driven to charge EVs or are people using the garage roof to 
use solar to to run their house as well? Or your garage technically does not use a lot of power. I would consider charging your or running at your house first than anything. Or a lot of times in the St. Paul houses, you only have 100 amp service. So unless you had a room addition or an home improvement project, you have a 200 amp. It's hard to pull that off the house and have an EV charging station. So a lot of times we end up having two separate meters or as met a gentleman today, we were trying to figure out his scenario where we might make the garage, the main power source, get rid of the meter service on the house and then backfeed the garage to the house. So, and then put solar on the garage and then put it into the meter and then the meter, you know, and then it, that would feed the house. So it's kind of how you set it up. There's so many different ways to set up. I always explain the options and what's the best case scenario, but I would put the house as number one for solar and the garage would be secondary just because you don't, you don't consume a lot because it's just lights and outlets. If you're running a mini split, you know, your energy bill is going to get up there. It's figure a couple hundred dollars a month, possibly if you're running it all the time. But once again, it depends where the power is coming from. Maybe the solar company can adjust it a certain way. They put so many panels on the garage, they feed the garage. They can put so many solar panels on the house and then feeds the house or something like that. From my understanding, the solar companies, they have a, a meter read where if you're not using all the power, that you, you get credit back or something like that regard. Correct. Yep. When you design a garage with solar, you guys are doing all of that prep work and that design yeah, work, right? And so what happened is our, our garage program that we price garages for, I actually draw garages you know, the garage is, and I send an estimate out, it shows the roof, the pitch, the sizes, all that stuff. So the customer, future customer, potential prospect, they can take that drawing, send it to the solar company. Hey, I'm getting this garage price out. What do you think? Should we get a higher pitch roof? And then I can also do drawings on a site plan where, and they can get on the GIS site too and look at where the garage location is going to be. They can see what sun's going to be exposed. So together we can come up with a, a better scenario for the customer. If they want an 812 pitch versus a six, or they want a it depends, you know, like right now I'm working with one that were their yard's mostly open, but I sent some two scenarios with the two truss designs and sent it off to, and he's going to send it off to All Energy Solar and then ask them about it and see which rough designs would be best for them. So those are the guys are the experts in as far as that. And I just, all I can do is basically give them scenarios and then they can kind of calculate and let them know what their uh, energy bill kickback is going to be. Okay. Okay. It sounds like you're I mean, the relationship's there to expedite the process for planning, at least. And from a solar perspective, are, is an 812 kind of ideal or, or greater? I've gotten different feedbacks. 812 is good. 612 is minimal. 1012 is optimal. So it's really, it'll work. You know, I mean, I've seen them put on 412 pitches where the garage are existing. They just throw them on there. Obviously, they're gathering sun no matter what. But as the sun gets lower, as the years, you know, the, the winter months come, they're not going to get as much. So the higher pitch roof, obviously, is better during the winter months. But I always say at least go a six. But a lot of times we're actually doing 812s for, for the solar design. Does that adding two inches to a slope of a roof? No, not that extreme. Let's say if I go from a six to a 12 on a two car, you're looking at about $400. If you go to a, and let's say it's just vinyl siding or something, it's easy to price out. Then you go to a, a, a 612, it's another 600 bucks. Then you go to a 712, you know, you're probably another 800 bucks. So the higher the pitch, it actually goes higher and higher, higher in cost. I see. Gotcha. What other tech are people putting in garages that the average person wouldn't really have on their radar? Uh, I got a feeling next year is going to be a huge jump for EV technology just because people are, whether they have an electric car now or not. And the solar thing, I guarantee that's going to be a big push next year because a lot of people are going to be looking at these energy rebates, incentives to put solar in their house and garages. So the thought process is get it ready. And then when you're, you have the structure ready to play, it's a lot less money to do it up front than trying to do it later. Good example is I'm tearing down a garage right now 
now he had a 100 amp service sub panel put in for his EV charger car. Well, we're tearing that garage down and he spent uh, $3,000 to have that installed. For us to go from a 20 amp basic service on a garage to a 100 amp service, it's a $1,400 upcharge. So in other words, it's half the cost to do it now versus later. So Sure. I'm kind of in that space right now. We have vehicles that are gas users and probably more than I should be just because of what they are, but they're old. And I'm like, well, do I do I move over to an EV? But when I move over to an EV, I've got this old garage and I've, I need to put a power source in there. And I just, you know, I've got all these variables coming through. And, and so I, I enjoy this conversation. Right. You know, from a planning perspective, do you guys ever run into issues with the city and this impervious equation that, you know, people have to deal with? If somebody wants to go with a bigger garage, should they ever kind of limit you pretty rare it? it's really rare where we have an issue most of the lots are alley i would say probably 80 percent of garages we build are alley access and then you get to use half the alley as a as a mathematical formula you know 35 percent of the rear rear lot coverage which if you do the math right it's it's you know 40 foot wide lot plus the depth and you get to use half the alley which is usually six or eight feet and then most of the houses are probably you know 40 feet set back from the alley or more Unless somebody did a room addition, there's a couple. There actually, there was one last year. I take that back. That they did a room addition, and we could not get a garage in, the, in, the, in there. So we ended up just doing a parking pad for the gentleman. But it just wouldn't fit, just because the room addition bumped out so far. But there's a 1,200 square footprint we can use for combined structures, and I'm only allowed to do a thousand square footprint on a floating slab foundation. What that means is it have to be frost protected, which would cost a lot more money if I went to a 1,200 square foot garage. But it's it's rare we do something that large in St. Paul. 700 square feet or maybe a max of 800. So it seems like nobody really asked for something bigger than that. Okay. Well, that makes sense because you do like to have a little grass around too. I mean, if you have pets or whatever, they need a place to do their business. Okay. Uh, I see a lot of these garages right up on the on the property line. And I know there there's some fire issues or fire protection issues that go into that. What does that look like from a planning perspective? Do you guys have to put non-compostable material up the walls, around the soffits, and up the slope of the roof? How do you yep. factor that? Uh, so it's a double firewall. So on the walls that are within five feet, which is it's common uh, that they're three feet away. So we have to do a fire rock gypsum material on the outside and a fire rock gypsum material on the inside. So that's and it's it's weather resistant and that's what we use. And then as far as the eve, if the eve is at a certain distance away, sometimes we get too close, we have to fire rock the eve as well. Because sometimes we'll do a variance or a maintenance easement or something like that so we can get closer to that property line. And if that eve is intrusive, that gets fire protected as well. Okay. Well, I guess you can use plywood that is fire rated to do that the roof deck is that what you end up uh, using for that the roof deck is not an issue it is only the walls themselves yeah oh so the roof decking can be just osb or plywood gotcha well that makes it easy then okay um from a process perspective is everybody stopping at your desk and saying rob can you help me plan this out or do you guys just have a catalog and you're like pick a through d and we'll put this on um, a lot. I would get a lead either through our website or, you know, a phone call or something like that. So I would be setting up the meetings. And then I'd, I'd just, you know, start from the foundation to work our way up. So talk about, you know, how big your garage you're looking to build, how many vehicles, how much storage you want, where's the locations, you know. And I start with that. And then we start talking about options as far as building materials wise. So really it comes down to every garage. There's not one garage out of the 100 this year I sold in St. Paul is the same. So everyone was different. It just, that's just how it is. 
So, and I, I read a custom fit for the particular individual, whether it's just they're going to be there a year or two versus some people are going to live there until they can't live there anymore. So I just, that's the questions we have to ask. How long do you live there? Do you think you're going to outgrow it? Do you think you're going to you know, need more space in the future or is this too big? You know, stuff like that. I should have known that it wasn't just cookie cutter because yeah, the city is kind of lot and block and there's predictable sizes, but everybody's lives are different and everybody's vehicle needs are different and kids and animals and storage. It's all different. How many are you going to do this year in Minneapolis and St. Paul? Let's just, if you could narrow that down. Paul sells out in suburbs. Uh, I think he sold 40, at least 40, maybe 50. And between Mike and I, I think Mike sold 120 in Minneapolis. I think I sold 115 in St. Paul. Yeah, Holy so cow. We're, we're probably pushing 280, 290, somewhere in there this year. Is that an incredible year for you guys, or is that we, a typical we year? We average 250, probably 240, so we're, we're a little above our usual threshold. Um, and it's not so much the volume, it's the kind of garages we build. More custom, obviously going to take more time for the crews to work on, and us to plan and, and work, you know, get done. So if I if I do these big room and acts with two dormers, you know, we're talking 12 weeks. You know, we're tied up on a project like that and and, then trying to finish. And and that coordinator can only handle so many jobs at once. How many big jobs do you really want and kind of build? It just, you have your limits. So the manpower, you know, how much, how much resources do you have? Can you get these built in, in in a timely manner too? So maybe next year we can handle a few more. Maybe we can't, but that's our comfort level. Probably anywhere from 260 to 280 right there. We designated one crew this year just to do our room and attics. So Tony was, he was our guy all year. So he just stuck with them. And, and then it's just a matter of, you know, if he kept up with those, then then we could have sold more. But there's just one of those things. There's only so many you can do. Sure. Any sense of value? Are you adding $1 for $1 spent to the value of your home? Or do you think it's even, is there a better return on that investment in your opinion? Yeah, that's a good conversation to have because it really comes down to, as talking to most realtors, it seems like it's a seven-year return on investment on a garage build. So let's say you spend $45,000. Did you need a garage for one? Or did you have a garage there? So obviously, if you sell your house and you have a certain square footage in bathrooms compared to another house that has the same square footage in bathrooms, who's going to have the higher property value? At today's market, it's just so overinflated. You know, obviously, with the market gets back to where it's more competitive, maybe the person that did build a two-car garage that's really attractive and nice looking and, and the other person that doesn't have anything to offer, their house will probably sell for more, you know? So, but realistically, I, I would say it's a five to seven year in this market where you actually get all your money back. Okay. You sell your house, you know, just kind of, you spent that 40 grand before you get that 40 grand back with the inflation of the houses and stuff like that. That's kind of a good rule of thumb. Outstanding. I'm assuming most garages now, people, if they're running electricity to them and doing all this work, they're also running internet service out there or Yeah. I mean, I think the new technology these days you shouldn't have to because there's booster boxes. Actually, I was my parents' place up north. I actually Wi-Fi the entire yard. <laughs> so there's little boxes. You know, I can't remember the name of them, but I, I bought them. And I put one unit in a garage because I want to have cameras up there for them. Because of their parents, I want to make sure everything's all right. So I put the booster boxes in the, in the garages, and I you have Wi-Fi in the entire yard. So those systems work pretty well. You shouldn't have to run to high speed. But there is a couple then that we're actually running an extra conduit in the ground. So let's say if they do want to run their own high speed, they have the conduit there and they can they can tap into it. So that's a least expensive option to do it. We 
rather have the homeowners take care of that on their own, but we'll have it set up for them with conduit, you know, for trenching wire from the garage to the house. So that's not a problem. Okay. That makes sense. I need you to come up to uh, my place up north and do that same thing because, (laughs) (laughs) in fact, I was driving home today coming to this conversation and we've got Starlink on on the cabin, which is unbelievable. It's fast, but my garage is, it's 150 feet from my cabin and we don't have any service there. So I can't put a camera on the driveway, so to speak, but I'm sure you could hook me up. One here, I'm looking on the internet now, but my cousin's a tech guru, so he's the one that turned me on to him and I'm pretty happy. I, I like that idea. I like that idea. I'm, I'm sure people are sick of me talking about my cabin and my, these are first world problems, trust me. And I'm well aware of it. So, but Rob, I, I appreciate you kind of filling us in. I, you know, I didn't realize there was so much to choose from. And it, it sounds like this is a, a 90 minute conversation through a planning perspective to really get in the ballpark of what's the best for each individual person. Everyone varies. There's people I spent probably 40 hours with. And uh, before they sign the contract, and I'm, I'm, I like to get the contract signed with as much detail and making sure that we don't make changes after the fact, because it runs a lot smoother if we don't make changes. And so I always, I like to try to review everything, make sure everything's correct, but changes do happen. But like you say, I'm, everyone's different. There's some people I'll spend 40 hours with, there's some people I'll spend maybe a half hour and they'll sign up with us. So it really varies. I would say the average is probably an hour or two. And there's some people three years from now will sign up with us after the fact and we'll make multiple changes and stuff like that. So it all varies. It really does. Bottom line is one call to you through the planning process. You'll handle all the permitting. You'll coordinate all the workmen who are coming in from the demo to the foundation and just even working alongside a solar installer to make sure that you've got this thing teed up properly so their people can come in and knock it out as quickly as possible. Yeah, and that's what works good for our company. What I give them a lot of credit because, you know, for me, I'm just a sales rep, which which is nice because I can focus on one item and one task. And that once it leaves my hands, once it's a sale, I'm in charge of writing up all the work orders, whether it's the foundation, framing, electrical, all that stuff I write up. And then I turn it into off. It's all it's electronic. And then we actually share that with the uh, customers because we want them to review it. And, you know, like one right now, I got to go over today. I got to make a bunch of changes because it was different what we discussed. That's fine. We'll make the changes. But before we start production, we're making sure we got the door in the right location. We got the window in the right location. But then once it, it goes into production, my, we do have project managers um, and they run the jobs. They're the ones scheduling the permits. They're the ones ordering materials. They're the ones scheduling the crews. And I try to go visit. <laughs> Guilty, but I don't. I should do it more often, but it depends how busy you are. If I'm not busy, I do like stopping by and saying hi. And I hope everybody who's considering, you know, a new garage will certainly give you a call, and uh, we'll see if we can break that 150, maybe get into 200 range for next year. The the city seems to have an endless supply of, you know, just old, awful garages where I'm amazed that they're still standing. And yet, when my neighbor tore their garage down, I was amazed. Like two thirds of that structure was demoed, and the roof was still hanging there. <laughs> The old materials were pretty good, but they all have their useful life. So, uh, Rob, I really appreciate you spending some time with us today and kind of giving us a global perspective of what it looks like to do a project like this. And for everybody who's listening, we'll uh, post Rob's contact information to the podcast in the notes, and we'll make sure that hopefully you get a bunch of calls following this this recording. Yeah. So thank you, Rob. Appreciate your time. All right. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. You've been listening to Structure Talk, a Structure Tech presentation. My name is Bill Ulrich, alongside Tessa Murray and Ruben Saltzman, who promised to be back at some point in the future. Thanks for listening. 
Hi everybody, Bill here again with Structure Talk. We really want to thank you for listening to this podcast. It's been a ton of fun for us to put this presentation together. And if you could, we would love it if you would go to any of the podcast platforms where you find Structure Talk and leave us a rating and subscribe to the show. You can also subscribe to our blog at structuretech.com. And of course, you can listen to the show on the internet at structuretalk.com. Thanks again for listening. We appreciate the support. And if you have any suggestions for show topics, please email them to podcast at structuretech.com. Thanks for listening.